Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Riley Smith. This week's show is coming to you from Commodity Classic down in Orlando, Florida. It was a shock to come to sunny skies and 80 degrees after dealing with 30 degrees and snow in Iowa, and it'll be just as jarring as we travel back on Saturday. Welcome to this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Riley Smith. Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Mark Magnuson will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. This month's WASDE report contained a few surprises for the grain markets. The primary focus was on the bigger-than-expected cuts to Argentina's crop from the USDA. I had the chance to catch up with Allendale commodity broker Mike Lung, and he provided some analysis on the recent report from down here in Florida. So for the most part, on our side of things, not a whole lot of surprises. But the big surprise came in the Argentina number with a bigger cut than expected. And actually, with that cut, brings South America's total corn production under last year. That is including Argentina, or Brazil's big jump we're seeing this year, offsetting with the 9.5 that's being taken off of Argentina right now and potentially still more to see, and the raise to Brazil that we're seeing just on a good crop down there. So that's actually a pretty interesting number when you're looking at it from just the big perspective of the South America crop. Those cuts were much bigger than what we usually see from the USDA, but Lung said the USDA will still probably stay pretty conservative with future cuts. Uh, more than likely you're going to see them get a little bit more conservative because this is not typically something you see. We usually wait till we're deeper in the harvest season before they really get on board with making those cuts that May, June time frame. But from here, they probably gave us a nice bullish surprise on that end of things and then looking to late, uh, just level it out until we get to these later reports. Other than the Argentina numbers, Lung said there was also a bullish wheat report. Not a whole lot. We saw a little bit of a change to the corn uh, exports, which gave us that bump in any stocks. Um, beans, they adjusted the feed as well as the, uh, as well as the export size things, so kept it relatively balanced on that end of things. But grand scheme of things, uh, biggest was definitely Argentina, and also you did have a pretty bullish number on the world wheat uh, ending stocks. So that was a bullish price as well, obviously not being reflected with how cheap Russia is able to keep their prices right now, but was a bullish surprise, just fundamentally. Lung said the movement in the global wheat market comes primarily from activity in Russia. Primarily from the Russia side, because they continue to just sell, and they are just looking to bring in capital, bring in stuff to help fund what they're doing, and they're just basically fire selling their wheat, which is what's keeping our market so suppressed, even though we do have fundamentally and data-wise numbers that should be bullish, and you're just not seeing that reaction on our price uh, reflected. Looking ahead, there won't be much of a focus on the April WASD. Instead, Lung said we're now anticipating the prospective plantings report and the May WASD. No, the big one that we will be watching for is going to be that May, because that's when you get that first new crop number. So that's really where everyone's going to be focused. And then obviously at the end of this month with the uh, planted, prospective planting report, that's going to be the next big focus. Kick the can with the April and then on to the May. Lung also provided some advice for Iowa producers. Big advice, what we're going to be watching here is going to really be that 24 crop. Right now you're below your insurance price for a lot of this 23 crop. Most people have some kind of sales on the book, so they have some kind of protection there. So looking at this under insurance really gives you that ability to focus further out, knowing what happened after 2012 and what happened during that 2014 to 2020 era with lower prices. So really focus on what the longevity of your farms can be able to do over the next several years. 
And that's all the time we have for news headlines this week. We'll go ahead and kick it over to Russ Parker with his faith-based food for thought here on Weekend Ag Matters. The other day I went out to the shed to use the Kawasaki mule and discovered there was a puddle of oil underneath the machine. But it turned out to be just a loose engine bolt. And after tightening it up, leaking problem solved. When it comes to anything that threads by design, the best combination is a grip that is snug and tight. And sometimes keeping that connection secure requires some maintenance. For an example, I have a wheeled wood cart that I use for transporting wood from the wood wagon, which is parked outside, to the wood stove. This cart requires assembly and is held together by screws that require an Allen wrench to tighten the parts. Sometimes when I hear the wood clanking, that means it's time to tighten it up with the Allen wrench. The word tight is an interesting word in the English language because its definition is discovered in the context of its use, of which there are several. One definition is having a strong grip, another stretched, tautly, or unyielding, another firm or secure. So, for instance, the pants that I wore in college would definitely not fit now because they're way too tight. Or, the knot in the toe strap is really tight and hard to get apart. Sometimes in the kitchen, my wife will hand me a jar to loosen up the tight lid. And sometimes my son will screw back the lid on his pop bottle so tightly that most others cannot get it open. In the last two examples, the idea of using our hands and the strength of our grip is at the heart of the definition of tight. It's a physical thing that brings the human component into the word, and there's a transition from the tight bolt to a tight grip. It reminds me of the documentary we watched the other day about Ireland and two teams of big men with a strong grip having a tug of war. And there's another definition that I referenced earlier, the word secure. It's the word that in my mind builds a bridge to relationships. So I've been thinking this through and asking myself, what grips me tightly? In what relationships am I secure? What are the things that tightly bind my life? To me, it's like two fence posts connected together by a tight strand of wire. One post is our place here on earth, and the other our place in heaven. And Jesus Christ is the tight strand of wire that connects us from one place to the other. In Deuteronomy, we read, Love the Lord your God, obey his voice, and hold tightly to him. For he is our life, the length of our days. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thanks, Russ. That's it for segment one on this week's episode. Coming up after this short break, Dustin talks with Mac Marshall of the United Soybean Board at Commodity Classic Trade Show in Orlando. This is Weekend Ag Matters. It's March, and that means the start of the 2023 planting season will soon be upon us. As the weather warms up, many Iowa producers will be jumping at the chance to get in the field as soon as possible. In your excitement, take some time to remember a few safety tips. Make certain that your equipment's safety features are all functioning properly. Make sure you get enough rest. Be aware of your surroundings and don't try to outwork your conditions. Follow these safety tips and you'll have a successful and healthy start to your 2023 planting season. This message from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. 
Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters from Orlando and Commodity Classic. I'm Dustin Huffman. Well, of course, when soybean farmers are taking their harvest out and selling their beans, we know that a certain amount of that money goes to the soy checkoff to help promote soybeans and help drive demand both domestically and around the globe. We had a chance to talk with Mac Marshall of the United Soybean Board, and he kind of gave us an update as to what is going on with the soy checkoff and what they're doing with that funding they get from their farmers. So here at the United Soybean Board booth, I mean, obviously the soy checkoff, farmers need to know their dollars are being put to good use. What are some things that you are really going to be talking with farmers about from all across the country, even our Iowa farmers, about what they can be assured of with that soy dollar investment? Well, what we're uh, continually working on uh, at USB through the soy checkoff, our farmers are embarking upon a newer strategic plan with USB where we're really focused on driving value back to the U.S. farmer through investing in a couple different uh, priority areas. The areas of health and nutrition, infrastructure and connectivity, and innovation and technology. And we look at it both across the supply side and the demand side. So health and nutrition, just as an example, supply side, if, if you wanna have uh, you know, healthy end product uh, you know, that you know, serves uh, for animal ag and human consumption, soy, of course, plays a very critical role in providing protein for humans and animals alike, that all starts on the supply side. That starts with healthy plants, it starts with healthy soil, it starts with production side research uh, to you know, Im- improve the overall resilience of, uh, of farming in the U.S. And when you improve resilience, uh, you improve economic potential. Now, that's supply side. Obviously, you have to balance that with what we're doing further downstream. The checkoff, we are a research to promotion continuum. Everything we're doing on the research side, we you know, can eventually leverage and turn that into a market outcome. So when we're doing research on uh, you know, allergenicity or other hurdles that may exist for uh, including soy in diets or uh, you know, people's and consumer acceptance of soy, you know, we leverage that and we use that uh, you know, externally so that we can continue to promote and grow demand for soy. Our, uh, our enterprise vision of the organization is to partner to deliver sustainable soy solutions for every life every day. And that means, that means portfolio management looking at a number of different things. And this is the challenge that our farmers have every single year. We had our board meeting last month uh, in Nashville in February where our newly con- uh, seated board that was seated in December gets together in their work groups for the first time and they look at the investment uh, opportunities that are all out there for each of those respective portfolio areas uh, in, those, in those aforementioned groups of health and nutrition, infrastructure and connectivity, and innovation and technology. And that means what's working? What are the, and focusing on the demand side, what are the demand channels that are our table stakes that we can continue to grow? Animal agriculture, as I said before, is the most important use on a volume basis of soy. Domestically, 97% of the soybean meal that we use in the United States goes into animal agriculture. Poultry, swine, dairy, aqua, beef, even companion animals, cats, dogs, horses. Um... So, you know, that's really, really important, but that doesn't mean that we've maxed out our potential on that. Over the next couple years, uh, as uh, the 
processing industry is looking to scale up and add a lot more crush capacity. Uh, you look at the announcements and crush capacity could expand by, you know, over 30 percent in the coming years. Now, that's based off announcements. And I want to I want to hedge that accordingly and say, you know, announcements are not capacity and capacity is not production. But there's still a lot of excitement and we you know, will see at least some growth in crush. And as we have more growth in crush, let's recognize what the drivers are for it. Soybean oil is historically, I think, been the underappreciated part of the bean. Yes, we're an oil seed, but you crush beans, you get 80% meal, 20% oil, four to one. So oil matters, but it's the meal that really has been the historical value driver. But over the last couple of years, as we were looking at an energy transition in the U.S., a lot more investment in, in green energy and renewable fuels, particularly in renewable diesel in, uh, in the California market, that's a product that is going to be using and is using uh, uh, vegetable oil and grease feedstocks, including soybean oil, which is actually on a volume basis the most important feedstock that goes into into that production. So that means that soybean oil is being appreciated in a different way by the market. Um, you know, prices are higher than they've historically been. They've come down over the last couple months, but uh, you know, oil is 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 uh, I, I think feeling a, a bit of a renaissance. Um, so. As crushers are expanding, looking at to capture margin through that oil value, that means we're also going to be producing a lot more meal. When you crush beans, if you want to crush them for oil, well, you're going to get meal. If you want to crush them for meal, you're also going to get oil. You can't produce the, the two uh, without producing, you can't produce one without producing the other. So what does that mean? Bring it all back to animal ag and demand. We're going to have you know, more meal in the years to come, which is a fantastic opportunity for users of soy meal, both domestically and abroad, uh, to have a greater experience of using U.S. origin soy meal or meal crushed from U.S. beans. So it's a very exciting, transformative time overall. Um, you know, it's also a time where you have to have cautious optimism, right? Anytime you have announcements of industry growth and expansion, um, you know, you get excited about it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's indicative of overall strong present demand as well as a pull from the future. Uh, and, you know, these are some of the areas that our farmers continue to invest towards. Certainly, like, we've had a long-standing uh, stake in the domestic uh, biomass-based diesel industry. Of course, the biodiesel industry getting set up in the 90s uh, as a means for, um, you know, for, uh, you know, marketing and selling soybean oil, which was an underappreciated byproduct at the time. And look how far we've come. Now oil, you know, is, is really enjoying its, its, its time in the sun. And that uh, happens, I, I think, in large part due to a long-term strategic vision that our farmers have taken and, uh, you know, a long-term uh, approach towards what is going to be best for the industry and the nation's soybean farmers, not just now, but in the years to come. That's why we invest towards health and nutrition. That's why we invest towards uh, expanding farmer access to markets. That's infrastructure and connectivity. So that's not just, you know, how do we, how do we think and, and, and work with partners to uh, continuously improve uh, our domestic infrastructure, physical infrastructure, but it's also uh, connective infrastructure, like broadband, availability to information about markets. How do you disseminate it? How do you tie farmers back to it? Um, and, you know, that's kind of the information and feedback loop that we have uh, so farmers can, uh, you know, have access to new streams of revenue, new opportunities that are out there, as well as make the portfolio decisions year after year as they're building out the portfolio projects, make it with the best intelligence they possibly can with a view towards the future while, you know, keeping one foot in the present as well. You know, it's, uh, 
I'm not a farmer, and I know I never could be a farmer. I can't. I simply can't bear that risk. So it's a profession I have a lot of respect for, and being able to, you know, live in the now and all the, you know, the 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 swings and drama of commodity prices and markets and, and live through all that risk, but also be planning for the future, be planning for the next generation of farming, be planning for, you know, the next generation of soybean production and marketing. That, that's really impressive, and that's why I'm proud to work for the checkoff. I'm proud to work for um, for the U.S. soybean farmer. That again was Mac Marshall of the United Soybean Board giving us a little bit of an update as to what is going on with the United Soybean Board's use of those checkoff dollars that they get. That's it for segment two here of Weekend Ag Matters from Orlando. When we come back after this short break, Mark Magnuson will be in to wrap up the show. Hi, my name is Ethan Smith, and I've been a certified crop advisor in Iowa for about six years. The Iowa CCA program is valuable to me because it helps keep me informed on new topics and research around the industry, including soils, insects, diseases, and much more. It's also a great way to network with others around the state and beyond. Iowa is known for its crops, and that's why we're here. To learn more about becoming a certified crop advisor, visit iowacca.org. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. You are listening to Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, where Iowa Ag Matters. I'm Mark Magnuson. In segment number three today, I speak with Carrie Sifrith, Vice President of the U.S. Grains Council. We had our conversation at Commodity Classic at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. Covered a lot of ground with topics including increasing export demand for U.S. corn, export demand for U.S. ethanol, and the current tensions regarding corn exports to Mexico. Here is Kerry Sifrith with the U.S. Grains Council. Mark Magnuson with the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, and I'm joined by Kerry Sifrith. He is the Vice President of the U.S. Grains Council. Kerry, we are seeing some export demand pick up overseas recently, especially with corn. What do you think is the driving force behind that right now, and what are we seeing in that regard? Um, well, we this marketing we had a, a very slow start, um, in part because of the low water on the river system, strong U.S. dollar, um, allowed our South American uh, competitors to be quite strong competitively in the world corn market. Um, Now the river is back to, not quite back to normal, but at reasonable levels so we can move product down the river. Um, The rail issues uh, that, you know, possible rail strike has been overturned, you know, uh, passed by us now. Um, And we're we're seeing, uh, in in part, some of the weather issues down in South America are making U.S. corn much more competitive. And so we're seeing, especially those big buyers in, in North Asia, Japan, it's always been a steady buyer, is picking up their, their purchase from the U.S. Uh, but South Korea, which will, they, they tend to switch uh, origins for the better price very quickly. And we're seeing South Korea come back and buying a lot of U.S. corn here lately. Um, and, you know, China is always a, a, a good market, has been a good market for us. Obviously, there's some uh, political issues between U.S. and China, but we've we've uh, probably not the level that we've seen the last two years. But we do see China continue to buy and ship U.S. corn as well. And what is the situation right now with China as far as China's demand? Because during COVID, they went into extreme lockdown measures, and it really 
lowered those demand numbers kind of across the board. So has that opened back up completely? Are we seeing those numbers back to at least close to where they were before? Um, well, the, yeah, I mean, their, their COVID lockdowns really hurt their, their, their uh, economy, and that's now been opened up. Um, so things are some fairly back to normal feed grain demand um, in China is difficult because you know they're they, they got domestic corn they import corn and sorghum the, our biggest sorghum market um, they'll buy feed barley from the world market um, and, that, and that's been there um, and then they'll even use old stocks of corn and wheat and rice within China so you got to watch lots of different grains to really understand what's going on in China and, and so we see gr- quite strong uh, feed grain demand, whether it's their own domestic feed, wheat and feed rice, um, imports of corn. They, you know, they've bought a fair amount of Brazilian corn this year. They uh, put together a protocol that allows them to do that. And so uh, there's strong demand there. Um, we're seeing now competition from, from Brazil. Um, they've bought a fair amount of Ukrainian corn in the past, and that's, uh, that's been an issue for them here recently. Uh, and, and but yeah, the, the the economy there is back open up. We see feed grain demand for the the pork and poultry industry. They're they've built back up after their African swine fever. Um, total hog numbers are not what they were, but total uh, hog production and feed demand is actually higher today than it was pre ASF, just because of what the the hog industry has gone through in rebuilding into more um, sophisticated operations that use higher quality feed rations that are using higher levels of, of feed grains and, and protein meals in them. Kerry, let's talk ethanol and something that, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about overseas demand for ethanol and where they're at with their ethanol uh, process, but Canada, you tell me, and also Japan are ra- raising up, I guess, their needs for ethanol right now. Yeah, I mean, C- Canada is our number one export market for ethanol, um, and they, Canada has some of their eth- own ethanol production there. Um, but as they as they continue to grow demand, um, by province by province, they're kind of starting to certain provinces are starting to increase their blend mandates, and so we're seeing um, demand grow there. And most of as their demand grows, and they aren't they aren't building new ethanol plants we're seeing more and more u.s ethanol go to uh to uh, canada and so that's one it's a close by market for us we spend a lot of time working with them and helping them try to increase their their blend uh, mandates because we know that's going to mean increased ethanol exports from the u.s um japan uh japan imports ethanol in the form of etbe so it's using ethanol instead of methanol and mtbe um you know three and a half years ago U.S. had zero market share of that. It had to be Brazilian ethanol that came to Houston, made it into ETBE, and went over to Japan. So we, we worked, our Japan office and our uh, ethanol industry and, and, and corn farmer members here in the U.S. worked um, to, to overcome that. We were able to get about a 40% maximum market share. We worked to continue that. We're now at about 66 maximum percent market share, and, and Japan is working to release their new energy um, regula- regulations going forward on April 1st. Um, we're hoping with and dis- discussions we've had with Japan that they'll allow 100% U.S. market share. Doesn't guarantee us that, but allows us. We're capped off. Um, and even at that 66% market share of ETBE, we're at, that's 100, 120 million gallons of U.S. ethanol going to Japan in the form of ETBE. If we're allowed to go up to 100%, it's about 200 to 210 million gallons. Um, so that's, that's a significant amount of, of ethanol exports um, that was zero just three, three and a half years ago. That's already 120 million gallons today, and hopefully we can get above 200 million gallons. It's, and then we'll continue to work with Japan to start talking about direct blending of ethanol rather than using the ETBE. But so those are two kind of exciting markets 
markets, but there's lots of others. We got ethanol going to Korea, South Korea, and that's being used for industrial uses there. And then they, some of that ethanol, they, they repackage in smaller vessels that goes off to the Philippines and Vietnam to other markets. We're doing a lot of work. Um, Philippines has a 10% mandate uh, for ethanol. They use, they blend their sugarcane ethanol and meet the rest of the mandate from imports. We're working with the ethanol industry in the Philippines to, uh, they want to go to E20 or even if an intermediate step to E15. So there's a lot of positive uh, uh, places uh, out, out there in the world market for increased ethanol exports as another way for us to move our corn in the form of ethanol out of the U.S. Carrie, is there anything else you'd like to let our listeners know about? Something that has caught your eye recently or something that you're watching? Uh, well, you know, a lot of talk on the Mexico market. Um, Mexico, our number one corn export market. You know, Mexico reissued a new decree um, here recently that basically is not allowing uh, imported white corn, GMO Im imported white corn to be used in the food sector there. Um, they are allowing, allowing white yellow corn for the feed industry use. Um, still a little bit of ambiguity on yellow corn that goes into starch uh, and sweetener production there. So, um, but USTR here just recently, just late last week, or no, I, Monday this week, um, issued uh, uh, that we are going to ask for technical consultations with Mexico on this issue. That's a 30, that starts the 30 day clock for those consultations to happen. Um, and, and if needed, then they could move to a dispute resolution within the USMCA. Uh, agreement. So we're, we're watching that very closely because Mexico is our number one export market for corn. Um, we do ship white corn down there despite Mexico saying that they're uh, self-sufficient in white corn and we ship a lot of yellow corn for both feed and the industrial use of the, that corn starch and sweetener industry down there. He is Kerry Sifrith, Vice President of the U.S. Grains Council, our guest today. We're at Commodity Classic in Orlando. Kerry, thank you so much for the time and have a great rest of the show. Well, thank you. And that will wrap up segment number three in today's episode of Weekend Ag Matters. You can listen to this episode and past episodes of Weekend Ag Matters on our podcast page at iowaagnet.com. On our website, you can also find our daily news stories and video content from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network YouTube channel. You've been listening to Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, where Iowa Ag Matters.